What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Bassist educator author David C. Gross and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. What happens? You're about to find out. It's another episode of Notes from an Artist. And welcome back to our listener for another episode of Notes from an Artist. My name is Tom Semioli, and I am broadcasting to you from New York City. And who, sir, are you? I'm David C. Gross, and I am broadcasting from the beautiful town of Woodbury, Connecticut. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guessed my name, David. That's it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, big night tonight. Bill is back. Author, historian, founding member of the Rolling Stones, Bill Wyman is our guest for the second time in five months, David. Bill was with us in... June of 2023 for the publication of Bill Wyman's Chelsea, which is a comprehensive guide to the famed district of West London. David, if you are in London, you must visit Chelsea and take this book along with you. Absolutely, because I want to see all those knockers. Well, what David is referring to is door knockers. Now, Bill takes a deep dive into the historical, cultural, and rock and roll landmarks of that now affluent district. And his photographs also capture door knockers, all the ornate door knockers that are in um, Chelsea. So that's the knockers David is referring to. Uh, Anyway, let's talk about Bill's new book. It's called Billy in the Wars. It's his latest book as of October 2023. This is his 13th book. By the time you hear this, he might have written a couple of more. It was released to the public October 24th, 2023. And what's special about the 24th of October? That's when uh, Bill Wyman took another trip around the sun. He completed That's exactly right. So once again, we are going to say happy birthday, Bill. Happy birthday, Bill. Now, this uh, memoir, uh, Bill recalls his experiences as a young boy growing up in wartime Britain. The book is available on Amazon. It's out now on Pegasus Publications. You can visit uh, Bill's website, www.billwyman.com, and you can order it through that platform. But Billy in the Wars, we get a very personal diary of his childhood memories. Uh, He recalls having to seek refuge in uh, air raid shelters, the trauma of enduring fighter planes flying overhead in London. He recalls the bombings, losing neighbors, losing classmates and constantly moving to avoid uh, the military onslaught from Germany. But we also have a glimpse into his relationship with his grandmother, whom Bill credits with making him the man that he is today. And she was an extraordinary woman, as you will read. When she first picked up her grandson, her nickname was Frenchie, she proclaimed to the other family members that Bill was going to be world famous. And indeed, he is, David. He is the one of the most famous bass players in the world. Absolutely. Next to uh, you and I, of course. Next to you. <laughs> exactly. The illustrations of the book are by Eon Marin, who is known for his various comic book and graphic novel publication. Uh, now, the theme of Billy in the Wars is courage, persistence, and resilience, and that could be felt all throughout the book. But, you know, it's also a story of adventure and opportunity. And, uh, David, when you think of Bill joining the Rolling Stones back in 1962, you can certainly trace that back to his sense of adventure and opportunity. And when you think of Bill leaving the band circa 1993 to pursue his academic interests, again, that is born of his appetite for growth, which certainly relates back to adventure and opportunity. Absolutely. As a matter of 
of fact, you have to credit Grandma Frenchy to many, many things that happened in Bill's life. His love of journaling, love of collecting, and of course, Rudyard Kipling. His grandmother read to him, If, as a matter of fact, folks, we have a version of If that we're going to be playing during the show, which was narrated by Sir Michael Caine. Listen very carefully, because this particular poem is a beautiful way to spend your life. And Bill is, is a direct result of this poem. It's, it's beautiful. And once again, hats off. Hats off. As you mentioned, it was Bill's grandmother who took him to the Royal Academy of Music, where he studied piano. And that musical education certainly served him very, very well, especially when you pick up our instrument, David, the bass guitar. Absolutely. Um, think about British men and women of his generation. And we've spoken with Chris White, Colin Blundstone, and Rod Argent of the Zombies. Spoken with Jim Rodford of Argent uh, and the Kinks, who are Bill's peers. They also had a similar disposition. So when you see Bill still recording, still writing, when you see the Stones in the studio and on the bandstand, again, it's all about opportunity. It's all about adventure. Tom, it's also about passion. I think the very first pop star to literally end his days, so to speak, performing was Frank Sinatra. Yes. There was no reason for him to stop. He loved to sing and he loved the songs. So I, I just can't, I, I, I think about myself and you, you know, we're going to go on forever. And why not? Why, why not? not? Well, again, his peers, Paul McCartney, still on the bandstand in the recording studio. Ringo Starr, still on the bandstand in the recording studio. And as of this broadcast tonight, we're still waiting for the new AI Beatles song to come out. First week in November. So by the time this broadcast, we'll have heard that. So yes. And of course, the Zombies just put out a record and they're touring. And again, they are Bill's peers. So yes, it's opportunity, it's adventure. And yes, sir, it is passion. David and I are very grateful for the help of Bill's assistant, Clementine. Uh, we could have not done this without our darling Clementine. <laughs> she is the best. Bill reveals to us that he has an album slated for release in March of 2024. And of course, he will be back on the show. And we're going to talk about the songs, the players, and his approach to the instrument. I always said that if Willie Dixon played bass guitar, he'd be Bill Wyman. And of course, among uh, our peers, he is greatly revered as an influence. And countless players cite him as an inspiration, and with good reason. And we're so glad that he is making new music. But Billy in the Wars, David, let's talk about the playlist. Okay. First of all, one of the things that I decided to do is when you listen to this and when you read the book, because you must read the book, one of Bill's personal heroes is Winston Churchill. And I was able to find a couple of wonderful speeches that we have put into this particular podcast radio show. When Bill started, his very first musical experience was big band. And so I found half a dozen big band tunes from British big bands during World War II. If you're listening to this tonight, you're going to hear them. But unfortunately, they are so rare, they aren't even on Spotify. But I will tell you who they are or whom they are. Tell or us who they might be. Or to whom they were. So one of the tunes, the first tune is a, a guy named Paul Fenelay in his orchestra. The song is called My Heart Sings. The second tune is Oscar Rabin, a tune called Scatterbrain. And I would really like to know if Trevor Rabin may be a relative. Could be. Never can tell. Lou Prager does a tune called Bumps. A Daisy, Ivy Benson and her all-girl orchestra does I'm Getting Sentimental Over You, which is a Duke Ellington tune. And Teddy Forster does You're the Tops. Then I've come up with a great, it's a 
five-tune broadcast, 1941, Glenn Miller on the radio doing Jeep Jockey Jump, Speak Low, Jukebox Saturday Night, and then If I Didn't Care by the Ink Spots is thrown in, and then it ends with, with Your Head in the Clouds by Glenn Miller again. Then we have, since we've already spoken to Frank Sinatra, we've got Harry Jane's orchestra doing All or Nothing at All, the Andrews Sisters doing probably one of the most important songs historically about World War II. Imagine the song Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree. The lyric is Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree with anyone else but me. If you're a serviceman going to Japan, going to Europe, the song has a lot of meaning to you. If you're the girl in America waiting, the song has a little meaning for you as well. So this is one way where history and music really does intersect. And that's another great thing about Bill's book. Wouldn't you agree, Tom? Absolutely. Absolutely. He gives you a sense of what was happening in the culture and what was happening historically and what was happening. Exactly. In the then we're going to play you four Bill Wyman tunes, Monkey Glue, White Lightning, Stuff, and the thing he did with his Rhythm Kings called Any Way the Wind Blows. Also, he did a session with uh, Stephen Stills with his band Manassas. Doing oh, the yes. Gangster. That is a fantastic record. Bill plays on a lot of that record. And he wanted to join Manassas. Of course, he did not join Manassas. He stayed with the Rolling Stones. And Calvin Fuzzy Samuel became the bass player. And he is a friend of, well, he's a, a former, he was married to our friend Amy Madden, a great New York City bass player that played with John Paris, whom you also played with. So we have a connection. Exactly. Well, I played with Stephen Stills as well. So Look there you go. It's a full circle. Then we have three tracks. There's an album called Jammin' with Edward. Oh, yeah. Remember that record? Yes, sir. And there's a great tune with uh, Rye Cooter called Blowin' with Rye. Mm. And that's not the alcoholic beverage. It is Rye Cooter. We then have Bill playing with Buddy Guy and Junior Wells, a TNT live performance of Hoodoo Man Blues. Great. Mm. And I think how apropos the London Howlin' Wolf Sessions. Yes. And what better song to end with Bill Wyman, who is sitting on top of the world. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great set. That is a great, great classic record. All right, David, let's get it on. Let's have Bill Wyman on the show. There he is. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Thank you. Okay, you joined John Altman, Ron Carter, Mark Myers. Oh, you had Joan, did you? Yes, we've had him on twice. He loves to talk about himself. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. We played charity cricket together for years, and we see each other sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I think of him as Zelig. He seems to be with everybody. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> well, if you've read his book, you, you're right, exactly. He's the hidden man that's in plain sight for some reason. We don't. I don't understand that. So, <laughs> Congratulations to you, Bill, another trip around the sun. Very good. Happy birthday. <laughs> One way of putting it, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, David, let me let me introduce Bill to our audience member. He is an author. He is a photographer. He is a collector. He is an archaeologist. He's a historian. He's a recording and performing artist. He is a bass player. And, a charity, and a charity cricketer. He's a charity cricketer. In his spare time, he was a founding member of the Rolling Stones. And we're here to talk about the new book, Billy and the Wars, which is out now on Pegasus Books. Bill, this is book number 13, yes? Yeah. Do you have a copy? Of course, we've yes, read we the book. We've read it both. Uh, both of us have read it. Oh, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly, more or less. But... Well, we can't say that for sure. <laughs> we just know we've read the book. <laughs> this is an illustrated memoir of your experiences growing up in wartime Britain, specifically World War II in yeah. South London. What I noticed, the stories, the graphics really paint a vivid picture of what it was like, what your young life was like. 
And the illustrator is uh, Elon, Elon Marin, yeah. a young man, graphics artist, does a lot of comics and things. Yeah, he's, he's from Southern Ireland. Yeah. How did you come to collaborate with him? He happens to be my eldest daughter's boyfriend. Oh, okay. And, uh, she's She's got a degree in animation anyway, so she works with animation and she's got things on, on YouTube. And uh, she met him and he uh, creates his own comics stories and then every picture you know how, how many pictures there are in the comic and he's done quite a lot of comics so he's a very nice artist and i love what he did so i just suggested to him maybe you could just illustrate them and he did a nice job i think did you give yeah. him any direction and in- a couple of photos but i didn't know much i had cut a photo of my my mother and father which he, he did an imitation of and one of me when i was five years old that's the earliest photo of me in in history we didn't have we weren't rich enough to have cameras so my mother and father got married but they don't have a wedding they don't have a wedding picture we just yeah. didn't have those things in those days they were like real bonuses so you, you know the book has universal applications somewhere in the world right now there's a william perks in afghanistan or yemen or gaza or iraq when you set out on this project when you look back on your child did you think that there were people right now going through what you went through well there obviously is but they're starting to get few and far between now. I mean, they're uh, they're obviously older than me, but and a lot of them haven't obviously written books. But I I just thought it'd be rather nice for people to see what it was like in those days, especially the younger people. Because some years ago, I did interviews, uh, not interviews, what would you call them, Q&As and that, with, with schools. I did about three and talked about what it was like when I grew up, when there was no electricity, you know, when there was no TV, no radio, no dishwashers, no, you know what I mean? And all these kids were absolutely amazed. No internet. They were in shock, sort of, so how did you live then? <laughs> and it was quite extraordinary. So I thought it'd be nice to, to do it and tell my stories because I do remember it all. And the hero of this book is your grandmother. Oh, um, she's wonderful. It, yeah, she tutored you. She uh, gave you the attention that every child needs. Uh, she taught you to be something special. And I think this is kind of, was that a way to instill in you the will to survive and in, in that time? It created the me. I wouldn't be me if it hadn't been for her. She taught me to do write a diary, to collect things. She read me all the famous books, Gulliver's Travels and Treasure Island and so on and so on and so on. Because um, she was a great reader, so she could talk on all kinds of subjects. She had me collecting postage stamps, cigarette cards, which you call baseball cards, I think. And all kinds of things, you know, and then she got me to start do piano lessons. And then she took me to the Royal College of Music in London, behind the Royal Albert Hall, where I passed my first two piano exams. So she also guided me on the way to music. She, she was absolutely, I, I don't know what I'd have done without her, actually. And she, you know, she was giving me love and affection throughout the war when, you know, when there wasn't much around. Right, right. And, and it's amazing that she said <laughs> you would become world famous. And this is in the days before global media, syndicated radio and television. Concept of a rock and roll star didn't exist. So it's kind of interesting how she was so clairvoyant. <laughs> well, she said that when she picked me up, when I was like, Two weeks old, and uh, she was with all the relatives, and it's the first time she saw her grandson, and she just picked me up amongst all the relatives and all that and said, this boy's going to be world famous. And everybody roared with laughter and thought it was really stupid thing to say. <laughs> but she was right in the end, but she helped them 
achieve me. Right, right. Obviously. Well, it's interesting in this book, it seems like courage is a theme, but also a sense of adventure. I mean, when you go to Wales, Pembrokeshire in Wales, you experience nature, you looked at it as an adventure. When you were helping your dad, when you he was a bricklayer, it's a sense of adventure. You're living in the Crowder house, and then you're going back to London to live on your own. It seems like there's this theme of when, yeah, but when I was evacuated in, in Mansfield, which is near Nottingham, Robin Hood country, if you like, I went to school there and I, and I traveled through, I had to sort of like a half a mile or a mile walk through uh, farms and, um, you know, lanes and everything. So I saw nature, which is the first time I saw it because living in right. South and it's just bricks and mortar. And um, that was magical to me. And I, I enjoy the story about how you, you bought your own bicycle at six years old. That's pretty, that's pretty uh, inventive. To do that. It sounds impossible, but it's, it was four months when I was in South London briefly, and um, I just ran errands for the kids, uh, you know, the neighbours and my uncles and aunts gave me a few coins all the time, and uh, I just collected them all the time. And in the end, I gave them to the man in the shop, and he said, you bought it. So at least I just gone by. It wasn't for me. <laughs> it's truly entrepreneurial, and I think I know in that box called Travel with me right the way through the war, and and then after the war, I gave it to my um, young youngest sister, and she had it with her family all the time. It was just a simple little two wheeler, and it was black, and um, I loved it. One of the things that the book really did for me, when you think about America and the fact that. Even during World War II, there was no one came here. But what struck me with the book is that you guys were bombed. You, it was, it was, it was you were really in it. We, we really don't understand that. Right. And even with um, 9/11, that was such an isolated incident in one very small area, which wasn't very residential. Yeah. But you really, you know, you were in the thick of it, which, which is really quite amazing. This was the great fire in the city of London. Almost to be compared with the fire of London in 1666. Pictures that look like hell on earth. Daily, you slept in the air raid shelters night after night after night. You couldn't stay in your houses. And the Germans were sending over like six to eight hundred bombers and fighter planes every day, sometimes three times a day. And I used to go to school with the bombing. We had air raid shelters at the school as well, of course. But you were taught what to do if you were caught out in an air raid. You couldn't get home in time, how you would try to save yourself. And you, you learned all this propaganda stuff and everything when you were very like six, seven, eight years old. But it was necessary. And food was really rare, of course. It's bizarre. Hmm. When you, you won't understand it even, I don't think, but... War ended in 1945. Been on rationing since war started. The whole country was on rationing. That rationing ended in 1953. Eight years after the war, we were still on rationing. So that's why we're all little. You know? <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot of the, the, you know, the rock bands from England are yes. little faces, you know, <laughs> because our diet was really, really limited, and you scrounge and and search for anything to eat in those days. That's a great observation. Bill, take us back to uh, in Penge. You got to hear Winston Churchill, Mr. Speaker. The disastrous military events which have happened during the past fortnight have not come to me with any sense of surprise. Indeed, I indicated a fortnight ago as clearly as I could to the House, that the worst possibilities were open. And I made it perfectly clear that whatever happened in France would make no difference to the resolve of Britain and the British Empire to fight on 
if necessary for years, if necessary alone. I have thought it right upon this occasion to give the House and the country some indication of the solid practical ground upon which we base our inflexible resolve to continue the war. There are a good many people who say, never mind, win or lose, sink or swim, better die than submit to tyranny, and such a tyranny. And I do not dissociate myself from them. But I can assure them that our professional advisers of the three services unitedly advise that we should carry on the war and that there are good and reasonable hopes of final victory. We have fully informed and consulted all the self-governing dominions. These great communities, far beyond the oceans, who have been built up on our laws and on our civilization, and who are absolutely free to choose their course, but are absolutely devoted to the ancient motherland, and who feel themselves inspired by the same emotions which lead me to stake our all upon duty and honor. We do not yet know what will happen in France or whether the French resistance will be prolonged, both in France and in the French Empire overseas. The French government will be throwing away great opportunities and casting adrift their future if they do not continue the war in accordance with their treaty obligations, from which we have not felt able to release them. The House will have read the historic declaration in which it is the desire of many Frenchmen, and of our own hearts, we have proclaimed our willingness at the darkest hour in French history to conclude a union of common citizenship in this struggle. However matters may go in France, or with the French government, or other French governments, we in this island and in the British Empire will never lose our sense of comradeship with the French people. If we are now called upon to endure what they have been suffering, we shall emulate their courage. And if final victory rewards our toils, they shall share the gains. I, at freedom, shall be restored to all. We abate nothing of our just demands. Not one jot or tittle do we recede. Czechs, Poles, Norwegians, Dutch, Belgians have joined their causes to our own. All these shall be restored. What General Vagon called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, 
including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. What was that experience like? And, and what did Winston Churchill yeah, mean to your generation? I saw him. Yeah. Came up the main street in Pange in an open uh, open car. We were told that the school children were told to go behind barriers. Okay. And he would come by. And he, he came down by slowly and stopped a few times and waved. He had his cigar and his, he did all his V-sign yeah. the right way around, you know. <laughs> 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 which is like your one finger. Uh, and I was like, I would say 12 to 15 feet away from him. And I actually saw him in the, in the, and I was probably then about seven. Mm-hmm. That was extraordinary. And he's become a huge hero of mine, of course. Yeah. Behind me, which you can't see, I've got a, I've got a drawing of him on the wall. There were people you had to admire in those days. I mean, he, he really saved us, his strength and, and all his great speeches and his great, his little one-liners and all that were extraordinary. So, um, yeah, he's, I've got a soft place in my heart for him. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting to read about the camaraderie that the British families had amongst each other. You, you, you mentioned in the book, Hitler tried to uh, destroy British morale, but in effect, he actually strengthened it. Exactly. <laughs> it was it was great. And it's not the same anymore. But in our street and in all other streets, as far as I know, because I had friends in other streets, everybody's door was open to anybody to come in and out any time in the day or the evening. And uh you were in and out of everybody's houses. And then the ladies, when when the kids grew up a bit, they had clothes. They were given to someone else who got smaller children. Right. And people helped out with food. People helped out with all kinds of stuff. It was it was so wonderful that hmm. that camaraderie, if you can call it that. Um, yeah. Everybody did everything for everyone. And if anybody got ill or anybody died, there was collections made around the street for them. It was, it was extraordinary. Yeah. Was that a sense of community, really, was it? Oh. Absolutely, and it doesn't exist anymore, of course. Yeah. Most people don't know who lives next door to them, which is a bit sad. <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. And you talk about your Aunt Dorothy, who dated servicemen and took you to the Croydon ballrooms, where you got enamored with the big bands, the dance band. That's when I first saw live music. Yeah. yeah. When I was, I was eight, maybe nine, and uh, I saw a big band playing. England had a lot of big bands in those days. In fact, American singers would come over and be and perform with them and record with them. I just saw all the girls and and uh, soldiers doing the jitterbug, which was you know early jiving, you know, <laughs> through the legs over the top and all that. And um, and I sat there with a lemonade, and I I thought, oh, I wish I could have been in a band when I get older. But of course, I never imagined it could be at all possible because they were all classy musicians that knew how to read and they'd been taught everything. It wasn't like we ended up doing just being free and doing it by ear, doing everything by ear without reading or anything. Right. Quite different, but it was it was quite a magical time, yeah. But again, you know, from reading other biographies of musicians of your era, including John Altman, you see everything as an opportunity. And you you quote uh, Rudyard Kipling, who says, yours is the earth and that and everything that's in it. So it seems like because you would 
denied so much that anything that came by was an opportunity, like joining a rock and roll band and making a record. Well, eventually, yeah, but Glenn is one of my idols as well, you know. And that's my favorite poem, If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowances for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet, don't look too good, nor look too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life for broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at the beginning and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are done and so hold on when there is nothing in you, except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but not too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 40 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. My grandmother said, Try to live your life by what Kipling's written here. Mm. And uh, fortunately, years later, when I did a speech at the um, Cambridge Union, mm -hmm. they a few days later, they got in touch with me and they said, you're very fond of Kipling, aren't you? And I said, yes. They said, well, come over and we'll show you something. And we, I went up back to the university and they took me in a room and there was the original If poem by wow. Roger Kipling and a lot of other things of his, all written on sort of very thin blue paper like the stuff you used to get in airlines, you know, on planes. Mm -hmm. you know, wow. Airline paper. And, uh, it, of course, it's protected in, in uh, you know, other cards around it. But there was all the corrections in the, in the, on the side and all that. And <laughs> I was amazed that actually seeing the, the, the real thing. That's an extraordinary experience. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is, since you served in the military, did anything from those early days sort of cross over? Now you're serving? Any of that with the memories and, and 
Do you know what I mean? Well, no, because I was actually in the RAF and okay. I served in Germany. And of course, <laughs> I had German friends and people working with us, civilians working on the camp that were German. And so there was that nice thing about forgetting the war and making friends again with German people. I've done years later with cricket, with football and, and everything else. Yeah, I was there a couple of years in northern Germany. Um, it was bloody cold, actually, incredibly cold. But um, I learned to be a bit more independent, to be stronger in myself, because I was very introvert, very nervous and very shy of that until it happened. And it did pull me out a bit, which was necessary. Yeah, I actually spoke to Chris White about his recollections of the war, and they're very similar to yours. And then, of course, he wrote The Butcher's Tale, which is actually about World War One. And when that came out on the Zombies record, Odyssey and Oracle, I guess, 68, most people thought it was about the Vietnam War. But it, like your book, it has universal application. I seem to be getting a lot of good feedback from it already. And it's only been out, you know, like a week, not even a week. Wow. It came okay. out on my birthday, which was Tuesday. Right. So you talk about there's so many interesting things about how like grandmother used to soak bread and rebake it, <laughs> things like no, that. I'm, I'm mothered. Oh yeah, your mother. Right. It's the only thing to do because you couldn't afford a loaf, a real loaf. Right. So buy a, a stale loaf, an old loaf from the day or two before. And then she would do that. She would soak it and then rebake it. And it came out kind of like new. But they were just odd, odd things you could manage. Otherwise, it was, I mean, once she sent me up onto the uh, the um, bomb sites at the top of the road to pick dandelion leaves. And we ate those between bread. And it was absolutely disgusting. <laughs> Have you ever tried to eat dandelion? David, have you? I'll get it on your fingers, that white sort of stuff. It's absolutely atrocious. But, you know, we tried everything. But that particular day, there was nothing else to eat in the house. So there we go. Just bread. and But you had powdered everything, powdered milk, powdered egg, powdered potatoes. They were in metal uh, cans. You had to survive like that. Yeah, and then your grandmother taught you with your scrapbooks, you used flour to make a sticky, so it oh, would yeah. stick to the pages. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, she got me to start doing a scrapbook and uh, a diary then in the war. And um, the unfortunate thing was when I came back from military on my first leave, furlough, didn't you? Yeah. I came home and my mother said, um, you can sleep downstairs now. We've got a big sofa bed for you. You don't have to sleep with your brothers again because we used to sleep together. Right. I said, where's all my stuff, all my school stuff and all my stuff? And she said, oh, I threw it out. Just kid stuff, isn't it? (laughs) So I have none of that stuff. Right. You don't do that to a historian. I still have my ration book and I still have my identity card and a couple of things like that. But there's not much left, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody threw stuff away, you know, obviously. Right, of course. Made sense. Gosh, I can't imagine the transition. I have a hit record. And all of a sudden, you have a bathroom in the house. You have the best food. You're you're chauffeured around in limousines. I mean, what? uh, That must have been an incredible transition for you, especially because obviously your colleagues grew up in the war, but you experienced it more because you were a few years older than them. So seven years older than making right. Right. So it was more intense. How how was that? I mean, could you even describe how that uh, experience is of all of a sudden? Just gave me a first chance. from a slummy house where I was living with my wife and my eight-month-old son mm-hmm. to a, a little simple apartment over a garage, which actually had a bathroom in it, a toilet in it. Yeah, I was, I was 26 then. I'd never had a toilet inside a building in my life before then. I'd never had electricity. I'd never had indoor hot water or anything or a bathroom. So it was like a complete change for me. But we still had to scrape money-wise because we weren't earning much money. At right, that time. right. 
But it was an ele- elevation. I did really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So what are the plans for the book? Are you going on a short book tour? Are you going to be doing readings? Well, I've got a big um, book signing tomorrow, a big bookshop in Piccadilly. Apparently, I've just heard that they've sold, sold all the tickets. Yes. I've signed books before there and you sell over 100, 150, maybe 200. It's a great start. And I'm doing interviews all the time as I am here. And I'm still doing interviews for my, my other book, which came out in June, the one about the Chelsea. I thought I'd separated them enough, you know, because... <laughs> I finished them both at the same time. Right. And one came out early and I thought, June, all right, we've got to keep the other one away because I've got to deal with all the publicity and promotion. So this one came out in October and I thought they've joined and they're still flowing. So sometimes I'm doing interviews for both books. <laughs> it's getting rather good. Thank God my solo album hasn't come out at the same time. Right. Well, David and I can't wait to go to get back to London. We're, we're going to get there next year. And, and I want to go look at the doorknobs. I've got my Chelsea book. And That's right. Like, it's better than a photos tour. Is the Bill Wyman walking tour of Chelsea. <laughs> right, of, of Chelsea doorknobs. So now we know. Well, great. Thanks for talking to us, Bill. And again, the, so the record's coming out in March 2024? Yeah, about March, yeah. Okay, uh, good. Not finished, but uh, they wanted to keep it and work on it, you know, until I... And it's it's pretty simple, actually. But I think it's the best thing I've ever done. A bit kind of like J.J. Kale. Better than Monkey Grip. Uh, uh, yeah, it's what I think is my best. This is what I think is my best Yeah. Album. And does anybody, David, do, we, do you ever really finish an album or you just run out of money? I don't know what the... <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think it's a, a run out of money. It's just that, you know, you got to put it out there sometime and say, yeah. this is it. We're here. Let's do it now. Yeah. Bill, do you think the, the album format is still relevant now in a, in a world of streaming or does it matter? Well, it's not, is it? Because it's rather sad for the new people coming up because it's very hard to earn any money. Streaming doesn't really pay very much. Not right. as albums, CDs and... Uh, cassettes and all that used to pay so that's quite difficult for people of course i'm a bit more fortunate so yes. if you sell t- 20,000 cds it's quite good you know what i mean it's crazy right that's, that's the number one in the old days you had to sell 600,000 or something all right well we look forward to new music in march 2024 thank you <laughs> all right good luck with the book and we'll see you in a couple of months bill thank you all right bye-bye nice talking yes <laughs> always He's- that's the way. The Churchill way, David, not this. Well, this doesn't mean anything in New York. It doesn't mean. It means two. It means two. I mean, I want two bagels. That's what it means. <laughs> All right. Okay, Bill, be well. Regards to Clementine. Thanks for everything. Again, happy birthday. From number 10 Downing Street, the Prime Minister makes the momentous announcement for which the world had been waiting. Yesterday morning at 2.41 a.m., at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Forces and simultaneously to the Soviet High Command. Uh, Hostilities will end officially at one minute after midnight tonight, Tuesday the 8th of May. We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing. Today is victory in Europe day. Tomorrow will also be Victory in Europe Day. 
But let us not forget for a moment the toils and efforts that lie ahead. Japan, with all her treachery and greed, remains unsubdued. The injuries she has inflicted upon Great Britain, the United States and other countries, and her detestable cruelties call for justice and retribution. We must now devote all our strength and resources to the completion of our tasks, both at home and abroad. Advance Britannia. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the King. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Bill Wyman. Thank you to his assistant, Clementine. We're going to have Bill back on the show, slated for March 2024. David. That's me. What have you got to say for yourself? Well, I want to thank Clementine and Bill for a great job. Well done. A great book. And I wish you great success with this. And we will see you next week. (laughs) 